Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. I really am so excited that you've decided to join us for this service. You know, people come to church or watch a church service online for lots of reasons. I don't know why you decided to join us today, but here's something I do know. God is at work in your life, and He's brought you here to this place in this moment to accomplish His purposes. Since people grow here, you will leave changed. I trust His work in your life. So can you. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the pastoral team here at Dayspring. We have a fantastic team who work tirelessly to help people grow. We love helping you discover the best path forward to deepening your spiritual roots, whether you are here in the room or watching online, live or on demand at some point in the future. If you are visiting Dayspring today, we want you to know that we are a come-as-you-are kind of church. We don't have any perfect people here. We are all in process, working through our junk, and sometimes that is a messy process. So if you can embrace our mess, we'll embrace yours, and together we'll let God work to clean it all up. And if you're just checking out Jesus and church, this is a safe place to bring your questions and doubts. We're all on a journey. And wherever you are on your journey, welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church, by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find study questions by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now... Let's join our service. Now, I have, I've noticed recently a bad habit in my life, and it's been bugging me. I seem to just give up too early. I just can't wait. So here's a few examples from my life recently. And I actually enjoy cold food. Drives my wife crazy, but I like cold food. I, the heat is just too much. Cold is good. Like, a, give me a cold piece of pizza for breakfast. I'm happy. <laughs> All right, I'm not alone. Thank you. But some food, admittedly, does need a little warmth to bring out some of the flavor. So for dinner, I might pop in some pasta into the microwave for a minute. And I hit the button, and around it spins. But that means I'm just standing there, right? So I, I, as a good millennial, will pull out my phone and scroll social media. But if I'm honest, they're all posts I have already seen throughout the day. Uh, so um, I check the time on the microwave, and it still has like 30 seconds left. So I'm just stuck there standing, waiting, just watching it count down. And then at around 10 seconds, if I'm honest, I will pop open the door, take the food out, and I'm good to go. I just couldn't stand waiting those 10 extra seconds uh, to eat my food. I gave up on maybe having a better tasting experience just because I couldn't stand to wait for like a few more seconds. And then for Christmas, my wife got us some fancy electric toothbrushes that have like built-in timers. Anyone else got those yet? All right, yeah, yeah. So every 30 seconds, it vibrates to tell me that I should switch to a new section of my mouth. It's pretty nifty. But after that third buzz, I am already tired of brushing my teeth. So I just take it out of my mouth and I give a rinse, you know, I, I wait and then it buzzes that fourth time, letting me know it's finished. 
right? I don't know. There's just something pressing about those final few seconds that I just need to move on with my life. Now, based on the laughter, I have a, I have a suspicion that this just isn't a me problem. Maybe for you, it's the red lights that you hate waiting for. Perhaps it's the line at the grocery store. This dude has two full carts of food in front of me to check out. I'm going to be here forever. Or maybe you're sitting here in the room or watching online on your couch, and you just cannot wait until this sermon is over. Fair enough. I get it. But the truth is, is that the greatest frustrations around time are when things are perhaps a little more serious. I just need to wait a few more days until my paycheck comes so I can pay cash for the car. But that Amazon list of stuff I want is so long, and I give up and just get more junk. Or I'm so close to finishing that job application so I can finally move out of my parents' place, but I procrastinate and play video games. I want to finish reading this Bible passage, but I give up a few verses in. Now, if we're honest, these time issues, they're on us, right? There, there are problems. We make a plan, but we don't follow through. It, the follow-through doesn't occur. We get impatient. But what about God? Doesn't it feel like God sometimes shows up late in our lives? Like, couldn't he do something about these situations that are happening in my life? God, I need you to act. Otherwise, I'm not going to be able to feed my kids today. God, my, my marriage won't be saved if you don't perform a miracle right now. What about my sister who still doesn't believe in you? I want to see her and her kids in heaven someday. We desperately need a savior to step in. And when it feels like he's never going to, we either take matters into our own hands or hold our disappointment against, like, against him. You see, God can often seem late. But often, there's more to the story from God's perspective, and his plan is better than our own. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So we are in week six of our series in the book of John. And John was a disciple of Jesus and is described as the disciple Jesus loved. And since John was so close to Jesus, we get a whole different type of gospel than Matthew, Mark, or Luke recorded. And Gospels themselves are a different type of literature than the rest of the Bible. While in college, my professor would have us write in our Bibles that this is Jesus according to John, because that's what a Gospel is. It's a record of the life of Jesus while he was here on earth. And John was with Jesus. We get to read a first-person perspective of Jesus' life, his serving, healing, teaching, and we get to join him along for the ride. But John had a goal in mind when he was writing this book, and that for his, for his uh, audience who was reading it. And guess what? That includes you and I this morning. So if we bump ahead from where we're looking in John 20, uh, verse 31, it, John wrote, But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. So with that goal in mind, today we are going to be diving into chapter 11, which is a turning point in Jesus' ministry. See, by this time, many had come to know about Jesus and believe in him because of his miracles and his teaching. He had made many appearances in Jerusalem during feasts and festivals lately, 
but with popularity came hatred. So the end of chapter 10 gives us some great context as we begin to look at chapter 11. So let's start with verse 33 to see how Jesus was viewed by the religious leaders or the Pharisees at this point. Verse 33, they, the Pharisees, replied, we're stoning you, not for any good work, but for blasphemy. You, a mere man, claim to be God. The Pharisees, these, these were a group of religious men who were extremely devoted to keeping God's law. Yet this Jesus guy is going around, he's breaking all the rules, and he's gaining popularity. They were not pleased with the claim Jesus was making about himself, being the son of God, and they sought to kill him with stones. So how could a man be the son of God and claim to be the Messiah if he can't keep the law? Right? That's absurd. That's blasphemy. He must be put to death. Right? They didn't believe. They couldn't wait to end our Savior's life. So Jesus withdrew from public ministry and spent these last days of his life with his friends and the disciples. In verse 39, we pick up once again, they, the religious leaders, tried to arrest him, but he got away and left them. He, Jesus, went beyond the Jordan River near the place where John was first baptizing and stayed there a while. And many followed him. John didn't perform any miraculous signs, they remarked to one another, but everything he said about this man has come true. And many who were there believed in Jesus. While the Pharisees were burning with anger and seeking to kill Jesus, many around him had begun to believe. Not only because of his miracles, but because they believed he was actually the Messiah. He wasn't an Elijah or a Jeremiah, but the promised Messiah who came to save the world. And this brings us to chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. So if you have your Bible uh, in paper form or digital form, whatever, you can read along with me. Verse 1, a man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters Mary and Martha. And this was the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. Jesus had traveled to the area where John the Baptist had ministered, which was across the Jordan River. So there was no chance that the Pharisees uh, would be able to arrest Jesus and his disciples. He was protected by distance and by followers. But Jesus wasn't worried about death. Right? He knew that his, the time of his death had not yet come. But his friends in Bethany, they're in trouble and are asking for his help. See, Lazarus is sick, and his sisters are very worried. And they sent a message to tell Jesus, hoping that, they, that he could come and heal their brother. See, they must have been close to Jesus because Mary and Martha knew how to get in touch with him. And John also mentions here an occasion when Mary used her hair to anoint Jesus' feet with expensive perfume. And this loving act shows how close their relationship was. I actually preached on this interaction between Jesus and Mary in our series about lies we believe, in particular, the lies we believe about God. If you want more context for that story, you can visit our website and watch or listen to the sermon from January 30th. It's also going to be mentioned by John in the next chapter. But the point is that Jesus and this family, they have a tight relationship. And the sisters, they're expecting their friend, whom they believe is the Messiah, 
to come and save their brother. See, Mary and Martha, they have a plan which is infused with hope and expectation. They sent their message and they're waiting for it to be delivered. They are anxious for Jesus to arrive, to do a miracle that they know he is more than capable of performing. In verse 4, we pick up. It says, but when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. All right, so Jesus' response here may leave us like scratching our heads, right? He says that the sickness won't lead to death, but if you've already looked ahead, you'd know that Jesus says from his own mouth that Lazarus is indeed dead. Even though he loves his friends so much, he decides not to immediately get up and go to them but to stay where he is for a few days. So what gives? Doesn't he love this family? Well, Jesus says it plainly here in verse 4. This moment has been sovereignly designed to bring glory to the Father and himself. From a human perspective, I feel that feels a bit selfish. He uses their pain to bring glory to himself. Doesn't that make us feel like pawns in a cosmic chess game? If you stop and think about it, I think it makes sense. What about all sorts of tragedies that are taking place in our world right now? Why well, I don't believe that every single crisis is ordained by God, they are allowed by God, and he can be glorified in every single situation. There is always an opportunity to see God at work in any situation because he is sovereign over all. See, humans have this thing called free will, and part of that free will is the ability to turn away from God and choose evil. But in that evil, God still prevails. In a proverb, Proverbs 16:4, it's written, The Lord has made everything for his own purposes, even the wicked for a day of disaster. See, the, the glory of God and the love of God, they're not at odds. Right? Jesus doesn't leave right away for two reasons. The glory of God and his love for this family. If you are Mary and Martha, the fact that Jesus didn't like rush over right away could have potentially felt like a betrayal. and probably felt unloving to them. But our feelings, they're often the true betrayer. They say lies to us and say, see, Jesus isn't going to step in and save you. He won't come. He's not going to act. But Paul puts his lie to rest when he wrote in 2 Thessalonians 3.3, But the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and guard you against the evil one. In other words, in, in the context of Lazarus' sickness, Jesus is saying, I know this is going on. And I am in complete control. And when you get to the end of the story, you're not only going to see the purpose, you're going to see me Jesus glorified through this very thing you never wanted to happen. See, Jesus is always faithful, and he has a purpose for this event, but it takes patience. So he waits a few days, and then he makes off for Bethany. In verse 7, we pick up, Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. 
are you going there again? And Jesus replied, there are 12 hours of daylight every day. And during the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of this world. But at night, there is danger of stumbling because they have no light. Then he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go and wake him up. So Jesus has been safe with John's disciples away from Jerusalem. But in order to be with his friends, he had to travel back towards the very place where his life was last threatened. So Judea was set up to be essentially a death trap waiting for Jesus. Bethany, where Mary and Martha lived, is only two miles away from Jerusalem versus the 20-mile distance that Jesus and his disciples had been. As we saw at the end of John 10, Jesus has had his life threatened multiple times at this point. And the disciples are very concerned. And Jesus' response demonstrates how connected he is both to his father and his mission. He uses a favorite metaphor, light and darkness, to help them see that the timetable of his life is in the hands of his father. The son, Jesus, is the light of this world and is safe. And the darkness represents everything else. He doesn't have to fear death because he knows that his life is in his father's hands. He simply has to follow his father's will and his father's timing. And when Jesus announces it's time to go back to Judea and to Lazarus, the disciples, they're not exactly on board. They know full well that it is dangerous for Jesus and for those who are following him to be near Jerusalem. They understood it, but misunderstanding his words about Lazarus, they kind of push back against Jesus' plan. In verse 12, the disciples said, Lord, if he's sleeping, he's going to soon get better. Because they thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. So he tells them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. And Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let's go too and die with Jesus. He's only sleeping, Lord. Let, let Laz get his rest and things are all going to get better. Eh, wrong. And Thomas isn't being a wet blanket, to be fair to him. He's pretty logical. He knows what's likely going to happen if they return to Judea. But Jesus here is setting up a moment that will bring glory to the Father and himself and revealing to the disciples, Lazarus' family, and the crowd of onlookers just what kind of power he has. But even in their misunderstanding, they were willing to go with Jesus and to die with him. They showed fierce loyalty, even if they had a long way to go in their spirituality. And so we pick, pick up in verse 17. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in the, his grave for four days. So remember, Bethany is about 20 miles from where Jesus and the disciples are. So let's put together a timetable of, of events to help us understand where we are like time-wise, because it's important for upcoming verses. So several commentators outline uh, the schedule this way. On the first day, the messenger arrives to Jesus with word of Lazarus' illness. Jesus then uh, decides to remain there for two additional days. Day one. Second day, Jesus and his disciples intentionally remain where they were. Third day, Jesus departs for Judea. 
And on the fourth day, Jesus continues on his journey, finally arriving at the home of Mary and Martha uh, in the town of Bethany. He was told that Lazarus had been dead for four days. So if this was correct, then Lazarus would have died the same day the messenger departed, departed to find Jesus. Right? That's four days dead. And we know that Jesus, being God incarnate, is sovereign over all. So he knew exactly when Lazarus died. And that could be why he was in no rush. Lazarus was already gone. But the truth is, it didn't matter when Lazarus died. Jesus has the power over death itself. It's no harder for Jesus to wake Lazarus up from the grave than to heal the sick or even sneeze. He can do it. And in verse 18, we pick up Bethany. was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem. And many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming. She went to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. So in the four days it took Jesus to arrive, Lazarus had died and mourners had time to gather and start the traditional mourning process. As Jesus approached, Martha ran out to meet him, but Mary stayed back. You see, their, their plan had failed. Jesus didn't come when they called. But the fact that they had hope in the first place was evidence that they believed in Jesus and his ability to, to heal. And even now, though devastated by this disappointment of grief, Martha expresses her confidence in him. And when Jesus stated that Lazarus would rise again, he meant right now, like today. But Martha could not fathom the possibility of an immediate resurrection. She understood God's promise that this life is not all that there is, and that someday Lazarus would indeed rise from the, again, from the grave again. But Jesus continues to clarify what he meant by his statement. In verse 25, Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I've always believed in you and that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. So Jesus asked Martha to affirm her belief in him and in the truth that there is life beyond the grave for those who believe. Her faith in Jesus, it's strong, but her understanding is incomplete. Jesus is proclaiming that resurrection is not an event, but it's a person. That he is the resurrection. Nothing can hinder him from giving life because he is the life. Though he will ultimately lay down his life, life cannot be taken from, from him because he is life. You see, this is a spiritual concept that both the disciples and Martha needed to hear. And we need to hear that as well today. Those who follow Jesus will never die spiritually. Jesus says it twice to emphasize the point. So Martha, after hearing this, goes to find Mary. Then she returned to Mary, and she called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, 
the teacher is here and he wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to him. And Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. And when the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus' grave to weep. So they followed her there. And when Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been there, my brother would not have died. So Mary greets Jesus with the same words as Martha, the same words Martha had used. So remember, this is their plan together. Though she is processing her grief differently, she's just as hurt as Martha is. Jesus had let them down. Lazarus wasn't healed, and their pain was really, really, really real. So these next few verses show how Jesus responds to their grief. Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them. And they told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him. But some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? See, Paul writes in Romans 12, 15, be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Before Jesus takes away their grief by performing a miracle, he joins in their pain. He enters into the grief before he exiles it. So we have talked at length recently about grief. We've talked about pain, and here it is on display with Jesus. He didn't immediately fix it. He was just with his friends in their sadness. We would do well to be like Jesus, to be present with those who are in pain. And while I feel like it is sometimes difficult to imagine that Jesus empathizes with us on like every single level, I certainly feel it here. Jesus is not only sad, but he gets angry with Mary. No, of course not with death, with sin, because this is not how things should be. See, death is a product of sin and causes nothing but heartbreak and sadness in our world. And so not only was Jesus angry, but he was also filled with grief. See, the shortest verse of the Bible may be also the most human verse. Jesus wept. It wasn't a loud crying, but a silent moment as Jesus mourns the loss of a close friend. So perhaps those who had gathered to mourn thought Jesus' tears were because of his deep love for Lazarus, or maybe they interpreted them as like an indication of regret and not arriving like in time to help. But Dr. Lauren, or Warren Rearsby writes, Perhaps Jesus was weeping for Lazarus as well as with the sisters because he knew he was calling his friend from heaven and back into a wicked world where he would one day have to die again. After all, Jesus had come down from heaven, so he truly knew how wonderful it was. But now, Jesus wanted to end the grief and bring the glory. Again, this moment was more than just about ending all the grief around Lazarus. This miracle was about the power of Jesus over death. So those assembled would see death defeated. The witnessing of this triumph would have never happened if Jesus had healed Lazarus from across the river. So we pick up in verse 38. Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. 
a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll this stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell would be terrible. See, at the last moment, Martha's faith falters just a little. Wait, don't open it. And though the arrival of Jesus is what exactly they had been waiting for, his timing didn't align with their expectations. From their perspective, he was too late. Lazarus was already dead. It was unfathomable to Mary that Jesus could do anything now. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone to the side. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. And then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave cloths, his face wrapped in a headcloth. And Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. You see, it was very significant that Lazarus had been dead for four days. Jewish literature taught that the soul of a person who died remained with the body for three days, after which there was no hope of resuscitation. And by the fourth day in Israel's hot climate, decay would have been destroying the body and the stench would have been overwhelming, to uh, give Martha some credit. And when Jesus called Lazarus back to life and resuscitated his decaying body, the people knew that he was the true Messiah, performing genuine miracles as the prophets had foretold. And when it seemed like it was too late, Jesus stepped in and made the impossible possible. Against a backdrop of weeping, of wailing, of doubt, disappointment, of fear, Jesus did something no one could have ever imagined. He cries out to a dead man who is once again filled with life. Lazarus, who's still covered from head to toe in about like a hundred pounds of spice-soaked grape claws, steps out. And though Lazarus was most certainly the center of attention, this event wasn't for Lazarus. It was for the glory of God and the glory of the Son. And while death did not hold Lazarus this day, it would take him again later. The scriptures had already recorded that both Elijah and Elisha had raised the dead. However, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead after the fourth day in the grave was truly an unprecedented miracle. This last miracle of Jesus is only recorded in John's gospel. And his telling of it ends rather abruptly. Imagine you have a friend who was dead for four days and then came back to life. That would be incredible. But the story here, it just kind of ends. Why? Well, one commentary suggests it's because it was a one-sided fight from the beginning. Because the moment Jesus was born, the battle between life and death was over. He is the resurrection and the life. Death didn't stand a chance. You see, you know, if Jesus hadn't called Lazarus by name, perhaps everyone in that cemetery would have come back to life. He had the power to do just that, but he called specifically for Lazarus. And Jesus and the disciples both knew that getting this close to Jerusalem caused such a commotion 
that would trigger the religious leaders to take action. And so we transition into this next part of the story. Verse 45. Many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw that this happen. But some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the leading priests and Pharisees called to the high, the high council together. What are we going to do? They asked each other. This man certainly performs many miraculous signs. If we go on, uh, if we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will believe in him. Then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. Man, the irony of this passage is truly startling. The Sanhedrin is totally bought in that Jesus is going around performing miracles that they'd never seen. You see, the word for signs in verse 47 implies that these events have great significance, and they fully acknowledge that. But they don't, they don't want to stop and consider what the significance is. They are so wrapped up in what their own expectations of what the Messiah should be, they can't even consider that Jesus is who he claimed to be. See, I, I often ask God, what am I missing what am I overlooking? Not just in my faith or in the disciplines of my life or my theology, but just in my daily life. You see, we become so accustomed to the rhythms and habits of this life, it's difficult to stop and ask why. See, it's such an important one-word question, and it's difficult because it can take time to sort through the answer, time that we don't want to waste. And these leaders they had an issue with time. They couldn't wait. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, they were not friends. But even these two opposing groups came together over one God-man, and they rushed to make a decision. Caiaphas, who was the high priest at that time, said, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't realize that it's better for that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. He did not say this on his own. As high priest at that time, he was led to prophesy that Jesus would die for the entire nation. And not only for that nation, but to bring together and unite all the children of God scattered around the earth. We're, we're introduced to a very important character here, Caiaphas. Caiaphas was a Sadducee and a high priest. He was up there with Nicodemus, if you remember him from earlier in John's Gospel. And even in this rushed, self-serving decision, he gave a prophecy without even knowing it. And this prophecy is from Isaiah 53, 8. And Isaiah wrote, Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, that he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. John adds his... Um, own explanation here in verse 52. Jesus would die not only for the Jews, but to unite all God's children into one spiritual family. Verse 58. So from that time on, the Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus' death. The decision has been made. Now the plans were being laid. Jesus was going to be put to death. The Pharisees and the Sadducees thought they were the ones in control of the situation but truly, it was God the Father working behind the scenes, and Jesus had known it the whole time. You see, often Jesus would warn his disciples that 
This was his purpose. But most of the time, they didn't quite understand, and neither did these Jewish leaders. Since Jesus knew the plan, he began his preparation for the cross. As a result, verse 54, Jesus stopped his public ministry among the people and left Jerusalem. He went to a place near the wilderness, to the village of Ephraim, and stayed there with his disciples. It was now almost time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Many people from all over the country arrived in Jerusalem several days early so they could go through the purification ceremony before Passover began. They kept looking for Jesus. But as they stood around in the temple, they said to each other, What do you think? He, He won't come for Passover, will he? And meanwhile, the leading priests and Pharisees had publicly ordered that anyone seeing Jesus must report it immediately so that they could arrest him. Jesus knew that his ability to be out amongst the people had come to an end, so he left Jerusalem to Ephraim, which is about 15 miles north of Jerusalem. And throughout this chapter, we have seen Jesus walking in obedience to the Father's plan and his timeline. If he had acted and healed Lazarus at the distance then not a lot of this would have happened. In fact, Jesus had already performed that kind of miracle for the believing centurion in chapter 4. But the fact that Jesus waited made way for God's glory to be revealed and teach us that death doesn't have the final say. Jesus taught that all believers will one day be resurrected and have life eternal with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen? We need to be patient before the Lord. Yes, we should absolutely bring our request to God. We also need to have faith that he is acting in ways that are far higher than our own. We should let God lead us to action that follows his ways, to set aside our own plans and be faithful. And while we wait for God's timing, we also need to rise up. Like Lazarus, God has called us all out of the grave to new life. So let's not stay bound in grave cloths of fear, grave cloths of disappointment or misunderstanding, but rise up in our homes and grow together as a family in the word. Let's rise up and begin to pray together. Or maybe today you need to rise up in the very, for the very first time and accept Jesus as your Savior. Jesus went to the cross so that you can have eternal life and have full access to God. So rise up. It's time to accept the forgiveness of sins and the fullness of life that Jesus offers. If you make that decision this morning, you can let us know it by emailing us, talking to me, talking to one of the pastors. We'd love to hear that. But today, we are pushing pause on this series as we prepare for Good Friday and for Resurrection Sunday. We'll be doing a short series called The Bad Boys of Easter. Love that title. So remember that high priest Caiaphas, he will be the first bad boy that we'll be looking at together. But for this week, you still have homework. Read through John chapter 12. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your son who came into this world to teach, to heal, to do miracles so that we could believe. But God, you are doing miracles still to this day because you aren't dead. God, you rose. And as we look forward to that celebration and that time of remembrance through Good Friday and Easter, God, we ask that you continue to do miracles in our own life, but 
often your miracles aren't on, on our timetable. That God, we have to wait patiently, knowing and trusting that you will act. God, help us to rise up. Help us to rise up to lead our families, to lead our spouses, our sisters, our community around us to have a deeper relationship with you. Let us rise up in our own lives and commit ourselves every day to following your ways instead of our own. God, you are so good. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. And God, let us worship you this morning. In your heavenly name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the study questions by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions alone or with others will help the truth of God's Word find its place in your life. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen or you can call the church during the week. This ministry is made possible because of people like you, people who believe in what God is doing through Dayspring. Your financial generosity is proof of God's work in your life. If you're just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. That is the responsibility of our Dayspringers. Just enjoy the rest of your day. If you'd like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. Also, Thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you're on. It means a lot to me when you pass on the good news of Jesus to your friends and family. Until next week, may you experience God's favor and blessing in your life.